Section 21 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Unknown Tragedian by Anna Cora Mawet Ritchie. Chapter 5. We do not purpose step by step to follow Mortimer and Elma's career in the provinces. They were everywhere and received with enthusiasm. To these audiences, the tragedian was already familiar. He brought Elma before them with exultant pride. Mortimer's habitual eccentricity ceased to be painfully manifested. The erratic comet now moved in a fixed orbit. She was the sun around which he revolved with steady light. Managers whom he had hitherto kept in a constant state of fear and doubt, rejoiced, and set beneath their painted vineyards and fig-trees in peace. No word of love ever fell from Mortimer's lips, no allusion to the contract he held, no half-breathed hope for the future. The blissful present filled life's goblet to the brim, and mirrored in its sparkling juices but the day and the hour. Mr. Ruthven's eager desire once more to tread the boards remained unabated but ungratified. His voice had grown feeble and piping, his gait tottering, his form bowed, his mind infirm, and yet his profession could not lose its strong fascination. He strolled about nightly behind the scenes, until the play commenced, and then took his seat with the audience, listening with entranced ears to the eulogiums drawn forth by Mortimer's vivid delineations or Elma's sculpture-like embodiments. Not unfrequently it was the aged actor who started the applause at some delicate point, which would have escaped the uninitiated audience. The personations of the villains invariably excited his ire. They imitated humanity so abominably, so at least he declared to his accidental neighbors. Between the acts, his learned dissertations upon the true mode of making up and depicting a genuine rogue, his illustration of the effects of crime upon the facial muscles, nightly drew around him a group of wondering auditors impelled by love for his art he indulged them with a small unsalaried performance of his own which certainly combined instruction with entertainment it was two months since the travellers left dublin they were now performing in glasgow mr ruthven according to his custom sat in front of the theatre he was too much interested in Mortimer's gamester and his daughter's Mrs. Beverley to observe who occupied the seat adjoining his. When the curtain fell, at the close of the first act, a familiar voice saluted him with, Ruthven, how are you? Glad to see you looking so well. And his neighbor warmly grasped his hand. Bless my heart and soul, you don't say so. I hadn't the least idea of seeing you here, my lord. Very glad, I assure you. Is that Mr. Edmonton by your side? 
Exceedingly glad, sir, to meet you again. An unexpected reconnoiter, I declare. When did you leave Dublin? Only three days since. Arrived in Glasgow this morning. Are making a brief tour of pleasure. I need not ask after Miss Ruthven's help. I never saw her look more charming, and she has gained dramatic power. We may expect a fine performance tonight. What father is not gratified by economes bestowed upon his child? If any such there be, Mr. Ruthven was not of the number. He conversed freely with the young man of Elma, until the individual who assumed that double-distilled villain, Stucky, awakened his wrath. For the rest of the evening he would only discourse with garrulity of age upon his favorite theme. When the play ended, Lord Oranmore, courteously ignoring the past, expressed a desire to pay his respects to Miss Ruthven. The father assured both gentlemen that they would be welcome. Mr. Ruthven rejoined his daughter to conduct her home. She was standing near the green-room door beside Mortimer. He was consulting her upon the best selection of a play for his benefit night. "'Do you know that you have been acting for some hibernarian friends?' asked Mr. Ruthven gaily. "'No,' replied Alma. "'No. Who are they?' asked Mortimer. "'Lord Oranmore and Mr. Edmund. Mercy on me! What's the matter with Alma?' As her father gave utterance to those names, a deadly parlor spread over her face, her eyes half-closed, her head sank back, her pulses stopped, but only for a second. She recovered herself almost before he had ceased speaking and made an effort to reassure him by a forced smile. "'Are you weary? Has Mrs. Beverly overcome you?' asked her father. Elma was the soul of truth. She could not have stooped to subterfuge. She answered, though with an unsteady voice, uh, "'No, I was not.' I am not more fatigued than usual. Mr. Ruthven looked puzzled as he conducted her to the carriage, followed by Mortimer. When they returned to the hotel, the latter seized an opportunity while her father was at the supper table to say, Elma, confide in me. I implore you, disclose to me your heart. The pinstroke upon that paper binds you to nothing more but confidence in me. What have you to fear, Alma? What would I not sacrifice for you? Life itself is but a breath I would gladly yield up, were your happiness to be secured thereby. Only confide in me freely. I have nothing. There is nothing I can confide, replied Alma. But her eyes were not raised to his with their wonted, ingenuous clearness. Strange said Mortimer sadly, and rising as he spoke, that I have so seldom failed in reading hearts, hearts that were indifferent to me, and that I have no power to scan yours, which is dearer than my own, and he left the room. Read my heart, Elma slowly repeated. How should he, when I dare not turn my eyes inward and view it myself? The mist-like gloom, 
that for two months had melted from Mortimer's brow, regathered in a night. When they met the next morning, Elmer perceived the ominous cloud, but she had no power to strike it with sunshine and dispel its darkness. Some invisible hand had troubled the calm-gliding, heaven-reflecting stream of her own life. She was no longer queen over herself, all her emotions in subjugation to her will. Every time the door opened, her eyes turned that way. The sound of a knock caused her to bound from her seat. Her color varied at every approaching step. During rehearsal, she was strangely distraught. She made several unaccountable blunders, forgot her entrances, took wrong stations, grew confused, and could not conceal that her wandering thoughts refused to be chained down to that charmless locality. Rehearsal was but half over, when Mortimer suddenly forsook the stage. The call boy searched for him in vain. At last word was brought that the doorkeeper had seen him leave the theatre. "'How vexatious!' exclaimed Mr. Busby, the stage manager. "'Everything has gone so smoothly through this engagement. "'He has conducted himself for once like an ordinary mortal. "'I was just congratulating myself. "'Now I'll answer for it. "'We shall have some fresh eccentricity. "'No more rehearsals, I warrant. "'I suppose something has vexed him. Ten to one if he will make his appearance tonight.' Elma, on her return home, found upon her drawing-room table Lord Oranmore's card, with penciled regrets at her absence. It was still in her hand when the door was thrown open, and a servant announced Mr. Edmonton. Where was all Elma's wanted equanimity and self-control? It had fled beyond her recalling at the sound of a name. In her agitation, her fruitless struggles for composure, how could Leonard Edmonton help perusing that page of her heart which was most precious to the eyes of a lover? For that he was a lover the reader need hardly be told. When Lord Oranmore proposed to make a tour of England and Scotland, his sole object was to behold Elma once more. Edmonton had been the associate of his former travels and was again solicited to bear him company. It was possible, we might say probable, that Leonard's ready acquiescence sprang from the same hope that animated the bosom of his noble friend. The characters of these two young men were in striking contrast to each other, though their affections centered upon the same object. Lord Oranmore was a thoughtless, flippant, worldly, a title coxcomb. By him, Elma was more highly prized because a gaping multitude bowed down before her. To Edmonton, that very circumstance would have made her less dear had he not known that she carried an antidote in her heart which rendered harmless the subtle poison of popular adulation. In his pure and lofty mind, the faults and the hollow found no echoes, yet his expansive heart unfolded itself genially and embraced all that heaven created. The harsh judgments that shot with withering condemnation from self-righteous tongues never sullied his lips. He had become a student of divinity against strong opposition because he preferred to become a messenger of peace 
a bearer of balm to the wounded, broken spirits, rather than to hold the highest office which the power of man could bestow. He was too liberal, too well-informed, too deeply imbued with Christian charity, to suppose that evil necessarily intermingled with the represented history which takes the name of the drama. He thought it no shame to love a, such a woman as Elma, though she chanced to bear the title of an actress, though she was the daughter and the granddaughter and the great-granddaughter of actors. The lights which shone upon her life had been struck from sparks that Leonard first kindled. It was he who had taught her to seek the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, believing that all things needful would be added unto her, all things which regarded her actual good, not her mere transient prosperity in time, but her unperishing, ineffable, ever-increasing felicity in eternity. From this source sprang her unrebellious patience, her never-failing trust. Leonard Edmonton was on the eve of declaring his attachment to Elma when he was thunderstruck by the information that Lord Orenmore had sought her hand, that he had been rejected, that she was already betrothed. Her image was interwoven with every fibre of his heart, yet he must pluck it thence. It was a hard disjunction, a cruel severing. For a time the flood swept over him, and the Ararat of his existence disappeared. When Lord Orenmore proposed a visit to Scotland, Edmonton found it impossible to trample out a hope which still flickered in his breast. He would see Elma once more, make assurance doubly sure, and part with her, if needs must be, forever. And when he came, Elma, as we have already seen, forgot for the moment her interview with his father, her bond to Mortimer, everything but the joy of standing in his presence, beholding him, listening to him once again. Her manner awaked a thousand delicious hopes, and emboldened Edmonton to give them utterance. The answer at which his heart throbbed tumultuously was not syllabled in language, nor conveyed in any form that could be coldly transcribed upon paper. But when Edmonton strove to break the spell of her eloquent, trembling silence, and implored her to tell him that he had not been wholly banished from her thoughts, that she had cherished some memory of him during their separation, she raised the lid of a box which stood on the table, took from an inner drawer a small packet, and laid it in his hand. He opened the paper, within which the bunch of violets, fastened by a golden arrow, which had fallen at her feet on the night of her mother's farewell. But Elma checked his explanation of rapture. Selfish and thoughtless! What have I done? she cried. How totally I have forgotten all that! Oh, there is so much I have yet to tell you. That bond, a bond. Do not say that you are not free, Elma, he exclaimed in a tone of consternation. Free? Yes, I am, and yet not wholly free. There is my father crossing the street. It is not possible now to tell you all. Oh, forget these few moments of happiness. I can promise you nothing. Do not keep me in cruel suspense, Elma. 
When am I to see you again? Let it be today. Let me know the worst today. Today? How can that be possible? The day is nearly over. Mr. Ruthven, whom Alma had seen from the window, now entered the room. Edmonton lingered as long as politeness would permit, then took his leave without obtaining another word of explanation from Alma. Mr. Ruthven was in a disturbed, querulous state, because Gerald could not be found, because Alma would not account for his sudden departure from rehearsal. Well might her heart sink as she reflected how necessary Mortimer was to her father's happiness. Her quick self-possession once restored, her resolution was quickly taken. She would not cause her aged parent's sorrow. She would not render Mortimer miserable. She closed her eyes upon the vision of that calm and holy future which had risen up before her. She would seek the earliest opportunity to confide everything to Edmonton. He was too noble-minded to endeavor to change her purpose. End of section 21